Tansé, Bojo, this is At the Edge of Canada with TJ Phillips, bringing you weekly check-ins with all the major players in the Indigenous intellectual community in southern Manitoba and across the country. This week we head out east to unceded Algonquin territory, Carleton University, where we check in with John Medicine Horse Kelly, member of the Haida Nation and a veteran of Indigenous journalism, and his co-director of CIRCLE, the Center for Indigenous Research, Culture, Language, and Education, Dr. Miranda Brady. These two have written a book entitled We Interrupt This Program, Indigenous Media Tactics in Canadian Culture. Picking up the story of remediation and Indigenous resurgence in the field of arts and culture and media and reproduction of knowledge and information. John and Miranda were fantastic guests. We caught up to each other over the reading week break after a number of missed opportunities, but they were super patient with me, and I appreciate that. So we had them on a conference call to talk about everything from the original interrupters of programs back in the 70s, social media tactics, diversity in the newsroom, how to do on-the-ground Indigenous journalism in First Nations communities, and the ways in which we can support folks, Indigenous youth, the legends in this, like Alanisa Bomswin and the folks who are doing great work like the Red Rising Collective here in Winnipeg. Super fun chat. I hope you enjoy it. This is John Kelly and Miranda Brady on At the Edge of Canada. How do you understand, so you, you talk a little bit about uh, a number of different themes in the book. You talk about uh, the public uh, testimonial record uh, for the residential school and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You talk about uh, Duncan McHugh's work in media and Indigenous portrayals in media. And then you talk about mm-hmm. remediation largely and how artists are, are subverting and challenging old stereotypes of Indigenous imagery, as well as spaces being created to support folks who are doing those things like Imaginative. When I think Absolutely. about when I think about John, I'll ask this question to John, uh, following what you just said. Um, how do you understand social media's role now, too, in creating, um, challenging, and resurging uh, opinions from the Indigenous community? Well, social media is one of the key elements, and it can either go for us, mainly for Indigenous people or against us, mm-hmm. and. Uh, 
important that it go forth. The problem with social media is that it's not it's not journalism in the hands of people that are trained to get to the truth. It's it's very much an expression of opinions, mm. feelings, emotions. It's a hotbed. But uh, we're definitely entrenched in social media, and we're going to remain so. Hmm. I'll ask uh, Miranda, I'll bring you in on this. Uh, Wamish Hamilton on Canada Land talked about the role of social media in enunciating the Indigenous voice or promoting it. But he talked about it in some of the similar ways that John just did as a, as a tool in journalism. Uh, how do you understand it intellectually working in that capacity? Yeah, I think it's quite important, of course. So I'll echo what John John said, that it, it can be a really important tool. And I think it, yeah, it's one way that people can, I think, access mainstream media um, in a way that it wasn't necessarily accessible before. So you can see that it's in conversation with mainstream media now and that it, you know, it's called on a lot. And, you know, in reporting, for example, CBC uh, calls on tweets all the time. And it looks to Indigenous voices to do that. Um, but I do, I do think John's right that um, it's, also, uh, it's also a tool that can be used by anyone. And so mm-hmm. it can also be used by white supremacists. Mm. I remember when a, a number of my colleagues a few years back were very excited about Twitter's potential for spreading democracy globally. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, everybody was celebrating it and thinking it would be this wonderful tool for democracy. But... I think we've also seen lately, um, if we think about the Colton Bushi case and responses to it via Twitter, it can, it can also be used by white supremacists. So um, it's a tool, I think, that's incredibly important for indigenous people to assert themselves and be in conversation with mainstream media. But um, I also think that we have to be a little bit worried about thinking about it as just a, a democratic tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the ways that I remember Wamish talking about it is the way in which it's used in community, almost as a local news source. Uh, mm-hmm. Reserve communities, First Nation spaces, uh, tap into Facebook often to get your news about what's mm-hmm. going on in those communities. So I'm always curious about what uh, the intellectuals think about these things. I have a follow-up question, uh, Miranda, and then I'll and then I'll go uh, to John. I'll get your opinion on this too. Um, one of the ways in which I find that Indigenous critical commenters are are charting out space following the notion of remediation and subverting and challenging old tropes is through memes. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways in which memes, I think, has let down the indigenous uh, public commenting community is that there isn't a lot of images available to meme because of how um, how repudiated strong indigenous uh, like voices and actors and images have been. I, I see this all the time. Um, I remember one tweet specifically how um, it's the, the crying Indian face mm-hmm. and, and being like, mm-hmm. how come this is our only meme that we have access to? Mm. So I was wondering how memes played because I feel like meme memes or the reproduction of images, GIFs, um, stylized pictures, um, you know, they come from a store of original imagery Mm. And when that original imagery isn't as robust as the mainstream images, then, you know, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a danger there. I think sometimes um, the way that you subvert something is to, to use, your, you're right, use the original archive in order to um, make it stranger to, um, 
to be in conversation with it. Um, so that can be that can be problematic. Um, it can also be, I think, it can also be powerful um, and funny. But you're right; there there has to be a way to step away from that sometimes. I think, and to create your own uh, to create your own imagery um, that will that will not just kind of poke fun at what exists, but to create a new repertoire of what's available for people. Um, to think about and associate with indigenous identity. So I, I have seen some pretty funny ones that were, mm-hmm. um, you know, that challenged, I think, challenged, um, you know, more mainstream, um, uh, I guess, um, sign systems, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it, and they are, they can be quite funny, right? Um, but I do think that, yeah, you're right, there, there has to be a way to um, maybe to reorient people and to step away from the original stereotypes that um, that, that visual um, sign system kind of comes out of yeah, here. So one that I was thinking of is the response in the Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada poster. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw, you know, I know there, there's a lot of conversation um, centered on that, the imagery that was used in that. Um, and so, I, you know, it's um, it was kind of a hot a little bit of a hot flash issue for a moment there, I mm. think. Um, but yeah, I did see a few kind of funny ones that were troubling some of the uh, more stereotypical aspects of that. So, mm-hmm. uh, John, I, I think about this question quite a bit. Um, the idea being, there are there are um, native artists like Kent Monkman that you point to in the book mm-hmm. who are doing incredible things with subverting like uh, original paintings like the the Paul Kane series and those types of things. But these are readily available in the contemporary milieu. Who, when you think about how indigenous um, social critics have been contributing to artistic spaces, who are some of the original folks that you think of that have been doing this for generations? One of the ones that comes up for me, for example, is Charlie Hill, who was um, hilariously pointing out the problems in Hollywood, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, definitely. Um, the, if you can imagine, it runs from the sublime to the ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So you uh, you get a popular movie out like Lone Ranger, and you've got Johnny Depp wearing a crow on his head. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no truth to the, to the image whatsoever. In fact, it was a painter, Kearney Sadler, that came up with the original image, and suddenly it becomes part of Native culture as the public sees it. And uh, this is terrible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it very clearly works on the ridiculous side. It stretches credibility. On the other hand, the images of our people doing uh, great things, doing things that are important, significant, are just as important our elders, our knowledge keepers, and others who preserve and maintain our culture. Uh, these are crucial to our our, our self-image. Mm-hmm. And also need to be in the media because we're presenting indigenous culture now to the public. And the battleground is the public. It's for the minds and hearts of the Canadian people. And we're putting... We're, we are emerging from the residential school era in which we almost were almost were wiped out in many respects, and we're coming back strong. We're coming back stronger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
I think I, I also just want to jump in really quickly and, and thinking about um, you're talking about some of the um, common common stereotypes that keep kind of rearing their ugly head back um, back into popular consciousness. And I was just thinking semiotically about um, uh, Donald Trump's um, honoring of Navajo code talkers in front of the Andrew um, Jackson painting, um, you know, and when he called another politician Pocahontas. Like, though, it's a we because we work in this area a lot, we think about um, how many times we've um, addressed those stereotypes and think that, you know, how could they possibly still be circulating back into popular consciousness? And you still see, you still see all of the same things popping up again. And it's kind of, a, it's kind of amazing that they somehow still resonate with people. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think you, you have mentioned Charlie Hill before. It's really, it's, um, important to think about com uh, humor and comedy and kind of decentering something like that. So some of what I've seen circulating on social media has poked fun at um, just how, how ridiculous it is that people still um, latch on to these deeply entrenched um, stereotypes. And they're, they're still, mm -hmm. it's still circulating. It's still, I still can't believe the, that, I can't believe a lot of things that are happening right now. But I really can't believe the fact that, um, that you know, those old tropes are still um, popping up kind of regularly. Mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing. I was reminded of this because uh, I, I'm, I can't, I'm not sure how long either of you have been at Carleton, but it could have been a former colleague of yours. I remember Armand Rufo was at a was at a literature conference mm -hmm. with me, and somebody was presenting, and they said that uh, now is the age in which indigenous folks, and we're talking about hip-hop and, and rap, now is the age where indigenous folks can actually rap their real live circumstance. Like, this is the first time that this has happened. And Armand was like, are you kidding me? Like, Buffy was doing this 40 years ago. <laughs> and and it reminds me uh, always to think about the folks that were doing this a long time ago. That, that Charlie Hill is a great example. In Neil Diamond's documentary on, um, you know, tropes in Hollywood, uh, indigenous tropes in Hollywood, uh, Charlie Hill features prominently in that, in that documentary series, making jokes. You know, one of the first indigenous folks to ever do, um, you know, like live late night. And he's cracking up jokes about, um, you know, white actors painted up to look like Indians. And I, I was like, this is 40 years ago that Charlie Hill was was hugely popular. We can't forget the folks that came that came first, even though there is this proliferation of media today. So I always I always think about that. Uh, Armin Armin reminded me that, you know, folks like Norval Morriso, uh the Expo 67 exhibit when, you know, when the the Indian Group of Seven were were trying to stylize the indigenous exhibits so that way it was a social commentary on INAC's lack of uh, investment in in First Nations communities. Like this stuff was happening a long time ago. But yeah. what is what is media doing today and how are folks tapping into media strategies today? That is unique. And memes is one for sure. Twitter, Facebook, these are tools that folks are using. Like Colton Bushi, for example, uh, once Gerald Stanley was acquitted, we had marches 24 hours later. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's important as a tool for mobilizing, and that's that's for sure. I do laugh, so I have some students who, who also write about you know so the importance of social media. And I also remind them of what... Um, you know, Alanisa Bomswain calls the Moxon Telegraph that you know people were yeah. mobilizing quite well before Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they did. They did it a lot. Maybe it didn't happen as quickly, but it mm -hmm. definitely happened. So, um, yeah, Twitter. Twitter did not invent obviously um, the Red Power Movement or right. yeah other other um, you know capacities to mobilize before. But, exactly. Um, yeah. But you're right. People. One of the ways we end the book, I think, is by 
um, kind of acknowledging all the work that mm-hmm. elders and knowledge keepers and um, the people have been doing in communities for a really long time. So this isn't new, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we, do wanted, we did want to kind of focus on one particular moment mm-hmm. um, and what was happening at that moment. But as you know, things change so quickly. And we were kind of sprinting to try to catch up all the time with, with how fast things were changing. Um, as we were writing the book, and one of the things that was going on was the TRC, and right. it was that was also changing. Um, the TRC itself changed um, and went through kind of several manifestations um, while it was operating. So, um, yeah, so that's that's one of the challenges. We wanted to kind of take a snapshot, but we definitely didn't want to um, suggest that, you know, all of the good work that has come before that didn't um, create a kind of foundation for what you for the movement and the resurgence that you see now. Uh, John, you wanted to weigh in? Yeah, I'd say that uh, what Brandon says is absolutely correct. We've come to a time in which the media are no longer going to be, the native people are no longer going to be defined by social images that don't fit us. I think one of the most powerful things that to hit the media were the images that came out of Oka. Yeah. And that is the resurgence of native people. They stand for sovereignty. Mm-hmm. and uh, the interface with the Canadian government. And uh, these images won't go away. And one thing is for certain, that uh, Native people aren't going to go away either. We're mm-hmm. here to stay. We're no longer relegated to the backyard. Mm-hmm. Now we're right where we should be. We're in the front yard. We have voices, and our voices are being heard. And that's going to increase, and I see that as a positive thing. Mm-hmm. That's why I love the image on the front cover of the book of Aussie Michelin and the Alsapoktok um, resistance, because that was one of those images that was circulated in is so triumphant, a lot like some of the um, the water protectors on horses at Standing Rock mm-hmm. uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the images of round dances during Idle Norm Moor, especially the roundy in West Edmonton Mall that was around the Santa Maria ship. Um, these images that are, are strikingly prominent that get circulated very quickly that are starting to to assert, as you're saying, John, their their primacy, their importance immediately, that this is yeah. native resistance that's happening and is being recorded live on the ground, and it's super important. Hence the title, We Interrupt This Program. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're doing. We're interrupting the program. We're changing the public image. Mm-hmm. We're also changing the images that some of our own people have for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a very crucial time. Hmm. We are, as I mentioned uh, before we went to air, that we are currently hosting the Re- Reconciliation and Sport Conference here at the University of Manitoba. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's happening is they're showing archival images from the NCTR Digital Archive. Mm. of students on teams and student-athletes in the background while folks are presenting. Mm. Elder Eugene Arcand, who is a collector of sport memorabilia, especially sport memorabilia from indigenous students who were athletes, um, got up and showed a few photos uh, that he owned in his own possession. And he told a story about how when he went to show folks in his community about these pictures that he had found folks were very angry because Mm. they said that these images were heavily manicured, that Mm. they were given new equipment, 
that they were told to stand a certain way. And then if you look carefully, only the indigenous folks had their hands behind their backs because they had to hide the fact that they'd been disciplined so severely with the strap. Mm. Yeah. So this recirculation of imagery, and, and John, I'll point this question towards you, is there is a danger in circulating these images that have been manicured for mass consumption, isn't there, when especially dealing with things like the residential school history and, and the truth and reconciliation efforts? I agree. Uh, first and foremost, we are people, we're human beings. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's it's essentially what has to come through. Their cultures are different. They're not the same as the larger culture. And their institutions are not the same. But we have a lot to offer. We have a lot to offer Canada. And that's what I see as a positive use of the media. And that's the program that needs to be interrupted are the old stereotype images. The ones that, for example, Duncan Duncan McHugh points to that an elder once told him that Native people in the media are either on drums, dancing, drunk, or dead. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not going to happen anymore. Mm -hmm. People aren't going to permit it. Mm -hmm. These photos were, I mean... <clears throat> you had mentioned that they were heavily manicured, and you're right, there is a danger that when they're recirculated, people will um, take what they see um, in the photograph to be a sign of the the kind of power of residential schools to assimilate. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we know, residential schools were designed to try to assimilate indigenous people, and it and they did not ultimately succeed, right? It, mm-hmm. They succeeded in, to a large extent and created so much damage and um, hardship for people in these, this horrible legacy. But, um, you know, indigenous cultures, is there's resurgence happening, and it's, it's going, going very strong now, too. So I think um, the photos were designed to illustrate how well the schools had assimilated people, but they, they, had, uh, they were not ultimately successful. So I think that's also important to note. Mm-hmm. Um. Wab Canoe talks about this in his book, in his attempt, in his resistance inside the CBC newsroom uh, about using the word survivor in articles about residential school survivors. Mm-hmm. And and I'll direct this question towards John. Um, Duncan McHugh, he, he talks about it a little bit in the interview in, in the back of this book, but how important are Indigenous folks in newsrooms and diversity in newsrooms to make sure that the right mediation is happening? It's challenging. It's a very different kind of a thing. Uh, I've been in journalism since 1975, and uh, Native people were relegated primarily to stereotypes and images that were out of touch with reality. Not enough. There's too few indigenous reporters in the standard newsrooms, and, and Duncan talks about this. Duncan McHugh talks about this quite a bit. Uh, how much he appreciates APTN and bringing mm-hmm. indigenous media to the people, but that it's, ex- it's extremely important for Native people to be represented in the mainstream media as well, because that's that's our voice, that's our images too. Mm-hmm. They're crucial to what we are. Mm-hmm. Something like one to one and a half percent, Duncan said, of the stories in Ontario, for example. Uh, are about indigenous matters in the news. We represent something like 4% of the population. Hmm. That's one half of 1%. Hmm. 
Hmm. So we're not being sufficiently represented, and we don't see very many Native people come through the journalism program. And the reasons are pretty clear. Indigenous communities don't trust the news media hmm. for good reason. Uh, it takes time to get to it's, uh, it's news to us. News is all about relationships. It's the relationships between the people and the reporter. Hmm. And a reporter who builds a reputation for being fair and for hearing the voices of our people correctly, for respecting our culture, our protocols, will go a long ways toward reporting in Native communities. But those who don't, won't. Hmm, yeah. Uh, Wamish Hamilton, in his, in his, in his interview in um, Canada Land, he talks about how he was doing some work for a local daily in the interior of BC and he went to a band council meeting and from his days covering local government, he just keeps a little notepad with him. He charts out stories. He said he had to stop when he hit 35 stories uh, in his notepad. That's And none of these got reported on in any newspaper in the interior of BC at the time. One band council meeting, 35 stories. And there just isn't the coverage. Mm-hmm. There, there isn't the infrastructure in place to do on the ground local journalism in First Nations communities. But more than that, it would take, as John's so rightly pointed out, the relationship that needs to be there for journalists to be trusted to come into those communities. And I think about the work that Connie Walker did on her MMIW, you know, who, who killed Alberta Williams podcast series and how long that process took to build that podcast. So absolutely, 100%, it's about relationship, John. You're right. Training for non-Indigenous journalists, Miranda, absolutely. So I appreciate both of your opinions on that. I'm going to get you out of here on this one, both of you. Thank you again for rescheduling time and time again to talk to me. Uh, I want to talk about Imaginative a little bit, uh, largely because in the book you talk about it as this site uh, where Indigenous uh, filmmakers have an opportunity to create and imagine and present and promote their work in such a safe and welcoming and supportive environment. And one of the things that I think about that's happening right now in Manitoba is the Red Rising Zine Collective and how they're creating that space in this periodical, so to speak, where Indigenous contributors and non-Indigenous allies have a space to, in a healthy and supportive way. So Miranda, question for you. Um, zines what are their role in this sort of new media and space for indigenous voices Mm, yes that's a good question i don't know because i haven't really looked at zines Mm. (laughs) in particular but i do think um from what you're saying that sounds like a really important uh a really important site um and any place i think where you have indigenous media makers who get it or understand um what what the stories are and um how they can be bended and played with and um you know, and kind of what the context is, then um, that's an incredible place for um, to create something that's imaginative, to create something um, that um, is for an indigenous audience. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the thing with imaginative is that you don't have to start from square one to um, explain to audiences all this context. The other mm-hmm. the um, audience um, is a mixed audience; it's indigenous and non-indigenous, but. I, argue a large part of the non-Indigenous audience kind of understands some of what's happening with some of the text, not, not all, of course, because they're not from those communities. But, um, you know, they don't have to start from the beginning to kind of explain what they're talking about, and the audience kind of gets it. And so, um, and the other kind of media makers get it. 
and so they don't um yeah i'd say that's really important it's a it's a it's safe um it's a space where people can be creative and there's already a place for people to send their creative works while they're making them so they know while they're making them they'll they will have a space um where they can be you know they can be um creative with other people and so I think that's also important to encourage people when they're thinking about what they want to do in their, you know, as a career or what they want to do, um, you know, as uh, something that might just be a creative endeavor is um, a space where they, where their creative works might be able to go. Mm-hmm. And so if there isn't a space, and that was a case before Imaginative, I think, um, you know, people, I think, new emerging filmmakers when they were just starting out, you know, or people who were interested in that didn't really have a space where they thought they could even put this stuff. Mm. Um, so it's important to have a site um, that will be encouraging, I think, and welcoming and, and looking for what people are going to, to do next to to encourage people to make creative texts. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it sounds quite important. I, I'm definitely going to look up Red Rising. Mm-hmm. They're doing amazing, amazing, amazing work. John, last word to you about supportive and nourishing Indigenous-led spaces for creativity and imagination. Well, I would say that it's extremely important to create the spaces for people to come together and to develop a common language. And... Um, Imaginative is one excellent place for this. I think that, of course, it uh, rose to prominence partly because it was in the same area as the Toronto Film Festival, but specifically it's an Indigenous voice. One of the key people in the uh, movement has been Alanis Bomsawin and her work with young people. She's absolutely amazing mm-hmm. that she encourages Native young people to express themselves through film. And she's covered some incredible subjects. And we need to see more of this. Alanisa Bombsman, the matriarch of indigenous documentary and filmmaking. Um, yes, good way to put it. Shout out to her and, and the work that she's been doing for years and will continue to do. Uh, John, Miranda, we interrupt this program, Indigenous Media Tactics in Canadian Culture, uh, an important contribution and overall look at the ways in which indigenous voices are asserting themselves on the mainstream media stage. Thank you so much for all that you do in the name of indigenous journalism, indigenous media, indigenous remediation, and acknowledging the fierce, incredible indigenous creators we have out there who are making sure their voices are heard. So thank you for joining me, and I appreciate you both immensely. That's well put. Thank Thank you, Trevor. At the Edge of Canada is produced at the UMFM studios on the University of Manitoba campus in Winnipeg, Manitoba. The University of Manitoba is situated on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, the Cree, the OJ Cree, the Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. You can get all updated podcasts and live streams for At the Edge of Canada at umfm.com, or you can listen to us live on the UMFM app. The lead track is Nahewak Starlight. And if you like what you hear from me, you can follow me on Twitter at TFillers. Up next, your campus today.